chapter 7 and verse 1 is the uh, continuation of our studies in in Matthew and, and particularly Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And I've spoken to a couple of people this week. I hope that you take some time to either read ahead and familiarize yourself, inundate yourself with the truths, or... Uh, continue reading it this weekend with a little bit more of an understanding maybe of how uh, of how it relates and then even get further uh, instruction and, and, uh, and edification from the passages that we do study. I have uh, jumped around with the title a couple of times and just stuck with the boring one, How to Treat a Brother, but I have uh, had come up with some other, what I thought were clever, but uh, I'll just keep you with uh, with just that, how to treat a brother or a sister. Matthew 7, 1. We'll mark there and we'll look at that in just a moment. Somewhere along your Christian journey, you're going to come to an amazing realization. This is going to be a discovery that is both surprising and has dramatic implications on your Christian life. You might have already experienced this revelation or not. It doesn't, uh, we don't know. But once you have been opened to this fascinating truth, it will forever change the way you walk through the Christian life. Here's the truth. Not everyone is as good at being a Christian as you are. We're not all as good as you are at being a Christian you're going to find that other people struggle with things that you don't. Some people deal with certain sins that have either never really ever bothered me or that I have long since overcome. And this could be because uh, God's Spirit has worked on me. It may be that it just was never a temptation that, that I ever had to face. And some people... Seem to when I just when I look at their lives, they they seem to, to to be messier than mine, less disciplined than me. And as I said before, this powerful insight can actually change the way we live as Christians. It can affect our relationships within this church, affect our relationships within our community, and even affect our relationship in our home. Ultimately, though, it will affect our relationship with God. Himself. So far, up to this point, if you've followed along, if you're just familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has described the characteristics of His followers, meaning those people who belong to His kingdom. Now this is simultaneously about who they already are and who they're expected to be. Just a, a brief overview. In chapter 5, Jesus detailed how the greater righteousness is produced internally and then uh, displayed externally. Moving into chapter 6, Jesus expresses the importance of proper motivations behind our outward behaviors. If you kind of summarize this message so far, much of it has been, do this, don't do that. Uh, be perfect like your Heavenly Father, not like those people. Don't pray like heathen, pray like this. Don't give or fast like hypocrites. Don't devote yourself to money or to earthly concerns. Don't worry, but rather give yourself wholly to God and to His and trust in His care. 
So eventually and inevitably, the question is going to come into your mind, if it, already ha if it, not, if it hasn't already, what do I do with people who don't measure up to the standard that Jesus lays out for us in his sermon? How do I treat a brother or sister whose behavior doesn't match what Jesus commanded? Jesus really turns to that, that issue in chapter 7 to provide both warnings to us and instruction. It's an issue that we all face as we live in community with Christian brothers and sisters because we are dealing with a community of people who have been forgiven but not yet fixed. They are no longer condemned, but they're not complete either. They're saved, but not sinless. So how should a follower of Jesus, how should you and how should I, interact with these other fallen creatures? Meaning, the person sitting next to you. The person across the, the, the room from you. Because to be sure, 100% of every church and 100% of this church is made up of fallen creatures. People who don't have their act together. People who still sin. If I'm going to be a part of the church, I'm going to be in close contact with people who, like me, don't measure up to the high standards that God sets before us. And we see from Jesus' words here as we get into chapter 7, that for most of us, we naturally respond to other people's shortcomings or sins, failures, flaws, whatever you want to call them. We respond to them by judging them. Matthew 7.1 is a pretty popular verse even for people that are outside of the Christian community. Uh, it's been thought by many to be a clear proof that Christ forbids his followers to engage in any activity that resembles judging. Christians, it seems, must never speak up. They must never speak out. In our world today, truth is exchanged for preferences and opinions, likes, pleasures. Nobody should have the truth forced upon them. And no one has the right to tell anyone else what is right, wrong, black, or white. Christians have largely gone along with this, whether we do it out of fear or we do it out of convenience. Today, churches are filled with people who care more for the entertainment factor in worship rather than hearing the hard truths. Preachers are not exempt from this. We, as, as, a, as a community, as a profession, are afraid or unwilling to say what the Bible says when it goes against the grain. And it's usually because of fear of how the people are going to respond. How the people in the pew will receive it. Kind of like we've become our own version of the emperor's new clothes. Remember that old story? Two uh, swindlers convinced the emperor that they had made him a suit of clothes that were uh, so fantastic that only those of the highest quality and appreciation could actually even see them. When in fact they were making nothing. And as the emperor uh, who did not want to uh, expose himself as someone of lesser quality, he pretended then to see the clothes and admired them. And on the day that they were supposedly finished, he put them on and paraded himself through town to show off his brand new suit of clothes. And it wasn't until a small child with enough sense to 
recognized what was real and with really no concern for what is socially acceptable said, he has no clothes on. Because nobody was willing to admit it, even though everybody knew there was a problem. No one wants to say anything, but everyone knows something is wrong. Now, it's true and clear to us in, in verses 1-5 through five that Jesus tells us not to judge in this verse. But there are many other places in Scripture that call for us to do exactly what it seems He forbids in this passage. Many times, Jesus Himself accused the Pharisees of being hypocrites and often warned people not to be like them. We've read that uh, many times already in just our brief studies of Matthew. Listen to this in Matthew 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Now, if that's not judgmental, I don't know what is. So which is it? Are we to judge or not to judge? As we study this entire passage this morning, I hope that you will see for yourself and get a clearer picture of what Jesus intends for us to know about the dangers of casting judgment. Because it is clear, if you study the entire Scripture, that we are both not to judge, but we are to judge. So as I mentioned before, this passage contains warnings and instruction. So this morning, let's just look at three warnings from the first five verses about judgment. You see them in your notes there, and we'll go through each of them. The first one is the danger of self-condemnation or the reciprocity of judging. Look in verse 1. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Now Jesus is speaking to each individual here, warning them not to judge their fellow disciples, lest they be judged themselves. We're still within the Christian community, so keep it within that context. Presumably, Jesus is referring to the judgment that we receive from God when, when he goes on to say in verse 2 that we will be judged with the same measure of judgment we use. Think of the various measuring cups and, and uh, instruments in your kitchen. You have the, the big pints and you have the, the teaspoons and you have cups and quarter cups and all of those are measurements. And Jesus says that whatever measure you use to judge someone else will be the same measure used to judge you. Whatever way you and I judge people will be the same way we receive judgment. So how do I want to be judged? To what degree or standard do I wish to be held? In what measure would I prefer to be judged? Teaspoon size? Or by the gallon? Notice that Jesus is correcting a problem that is within each of us. Because for the entire sermon, the focus has been on what I do. This, this was just shocking to me as this, this kind of realization came to me as I was studying it this week. Think about his sermon so far. I should not worry. I should not have the wrong treasures. I should give to the needy and love my enemies. I should let my light shine before men. I should pray and fast and give with proper motivations. But the way that we hear it, and the way that 
uh, I'm sorry, the way that Jesus switches gears in chapter 7 shows us the way that we hear it is, you should not worry. You should be perfect as your father. You should be salt and light. You should go the extra mile and turn the other cheek. And on and on and on. When I should be focused and concerned on my greater righteousness, instead I'm looking to see how you're doing. That's how we live as people, don't we? I know what the standard is, and instead of looking to see how I measure up, I'm watching you. Hmm. They failed again. They failed. Look at those people out there. They just can't do what they're supposed to do. All the while, failing to see my failures. We assume the role of judge for our fellow brothers and sisters and seek to assess how well they're doing in measuring up to Jesus' standards. And chapter 7 begins by pulling the attention back on ourselves. Because he hasn't said, worry about your brothers, but all of a sudden, what he says in chapter 7, verse 1, points to the fact that we have heard this and then started looking at our brothers, and he's pulling us back saying, judge not. Look at your own self. I said at the beginning earlier that a life-altering truth is not is that not everyone is as good at being a Christian as you are. But the reality, reality is, I'm not very good at being a Christian to begin with. Yeah, there are people who are not as good as I am at doing this thing called the Christian life, but that doesn't mean that I'm very good at myself. And the other reality that we don't like to think about very much is that there are many people who are much better at living the Christian life than me. So where's my focus? Jesus points out that it's usually on others, particularly on those I feel are less successful than I am. Well, why do I focus on them? Really, it's because it makes me feel better about myself, doesn't it? When I look at my own spiritual growth, sometimes that can be discouraging. When I recognize my own flaws, my own sins, my own failures, I don't get a, a warm and fuzzy about how I'm doing in the Christian life. Those better than me even make me feel inadequate. But those who struggle with sins that are different than mine make me feel good about myself. It's those people that I tend to look at through the eyes of the Pharisee who prayed in the temple. God, thank you that I'm not like that guy. You know, obviously, I'm not perfect, but it could be much worse. And the more we think about that, the more we start to think, you know, maybe I'm not as bad as I thought. That leads to the second warning, the danger of self-deception. Look down in verse 3. Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considers not the beam that is in thine own eye? How wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, the beam is in thine own eye? Jesus warns us here that we are easily blinded to our own sin. Worse, it's not that we're blinded to our sin every time, but that we are willfully ignorant of it. We've learned to ignore and tolerate our own sin Instead, to focus on other people. While we supposedly can't see our own sin, we can spot other people's flaws with an eagle eye. Jesus uses this hyperbole to contrast my, my own faults with yours. He says, why do you see a splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood that's lodged in your own? 
Now, it's true that there should not be even so much as a splinter, a little sliver of wood in a person's eye representing flaws, representing sin. Yes, they no, they should not have that in there. That is true. But wouldn't you agree that a beam-sized sin in my own eye is far more serious and deserves the priority of my attention over a tiny sliver in someone else's? And notice that Jesus asks a why question here. He says, why? Uh, why beholdest thou the moat? Why do you see the, 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 the little moat in your brother's eye but not? Why do you see your brother's faults but not your own? The issue is not if we see our faults, but why we ignore them to focus on other people's. Why is it so hard to see the sin in my own life but so easy to notice it in yours? Why do I pick out the problems in your marriage but pay no attention to the problems in mine? Why do I gawk at your failures in parenting and take no notice of what's happening in my own home? Why do I hear your conversations and recognize when they turn to gossip or complaining but don't seem to catch it in my own speech? Why do I see when your faith is lacking and small, but not when I have none at all? Why do we ignore our own faults and pick out other people's? Well, it's because of pride. We're likely to see the sin in our own lives. Or at least that we could see the sin, but we choose to ignore it and focus on somebody else. We look down on other people for the shame of having a small speck in their eye when in fact, our sins are often greater and much more severe. The splinter or moat in my brother's eye is just a shaving off of the beam stuck in my head. You have a twig. I have a log. And I'm not ashamed of it. We've learned to tolerate and excuse our own sin and busy ourselves with judging other people for theirs. And that brings us to the third danger. We look down in verse number 4. In the third warning, Jesus asks another question here. How wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the moat out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. He says, how can you tell your brother, come here and let me pick out that, that splinter in your eye? He says, look at the beam in yours. It's a log, man. His is just a twig. And you've got a beam. You've got a two-by-four stuck in your head and you're concerned about a sliver. How could you even say or think that you could fix someone else's problem while much greater problems exist in your own life? Let me ask you a question. Would you take financial advice? Retirement advice? Investing of any kind from someone who had lost all of their money? Of course not. How would you respond to someone who gave you parenting tips that had either never had children or had thoroughly ruined their own? You wouldn't, we wouldn't say, oh yeah, this guy knows what he's talking about. No. Then why, if we wouldn't take it, would we try to give it when we're obviously unqualified? Do you think that the brother that I'm judging notices the log in my eye? Is that something you can hide and decorate well? Can you bedazzle it and make it not so awful to look at? 
Do you think that he thinks it's ridiculous that I would judge him? Now, sometimes our sins are so inner inner and, and hidden that the brother doesn't see because this is metaphorical. Obviously, you can't walk around with a two by four in your eye and be okay. But even if my brother can't see my sin, God does and I can. And Jesus asks, how can you do this? He already asked why. But now he says, how can you do this? I mean, imagine the gall, the arrogance, the nerve to stand in judgment of another person when we ourselves are guilty of much worse and much greater sin. And it's all done under the guise of helping. I make it sound like I'm trying to do the Christian thing and help this poor sinner get better, become just like me. Jesus calls this hypocrisy in verse 5. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Who are you to stand in judgment? You have worse problems than he does, Jesus says. Get yourself right, and then you can help if that's really your goal. Jesus said that we should first deal with the two-by-four in our own eyeball and thereby enable ourselves to help a brother out. But with a beam stuck in my eye, I can't see clearly either to know what my brother truly needs or how best to help him. Imagine the further damage that I would do to another person while trying to perform eye surgery with a stick of wood protruding from my noggin. I would do even more damage. This hypocritical eye surgery, hypocritical optometry does more harm than good, does it not? At this point, it's helpful for us to reconsider verse 1 again because if Jesus meant that we are never to judge a person, how could He now say that we could ever truly help a person without judging Him? After all, by identifying the splinter in my brother's eye, I've cast judgment. By suggesting that the splinter should be removed and that I might be able to help is a form of judgment. Should I never be concerned about my brothers? Should I ever try to help a sister? If I see a brother or sister caught in sin, what do I do? If I don't want to judge, but I want to help, what's my option? Well, the Apostle Paul is helpful here to explain how we can both help a brother in need and practice proper judgment. Let me invite you to turn over to Galatians chapter 6. And we'll look at just a couple of verses over there. Leave your place here in Matthew, because we'll, we will be back there. But Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 1. Galatians 6 and verse 1. Now Paul is not going to contradict Jesus in the slightest. He is, remember, under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Paul understands what Jesus has taught. But he helps us to answer this question. How can I judge without being judgmental? Galatians 6 verse 1. Brethren... If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. When writing to the Galatian church, Paul said that if anyone was overtaken or caught up in a fault, that is, if a brother in the church is found with something in his eye, then those who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of meekness, and gentleness, and humility. These are the people who have dealt with the issues in their own lives, 
They have honestly confessed their sins before God, sought His mercy and forgiveness. They daily search their lives for sin, and through God's grace and by His Word, they seek to keep their eyes free from logs, beams, specks, and splinters. Then they humbly come to the aid of a brother, not to condemn him, because they know who they are. They know what they've just experienced. They come to truly help him because they love him. They they love the, the body of Christ and wish to restore this particular member to full health. Paul even says that as they do it, they should be careful not to fall into the same temptation themselves because we are all prone to the same sins. Notice how he continues in verse 2. Bear ye one another's burdens. Think about that log in my eye. Imagine, I always try to think about, how would you, if I wanted to have like an object lesson, how could I even like hold a beam of, of wood from my head without hurting my neck? If I bear another one's burden, maybe, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. This form of judgment is a very serious responsibility, for in doing so, I must guard against hypocrisy. The hypocrisy that Jesus refers to is in pretending that I'm able and qualified to deal with a person's sin. And I'm not. That's why He said there, back in in chapter 7, He says, Hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. I pretend that the beam in my eye is not a problem. Not needing any kind of removal. And I assume responsibility and capability to address my brother's flaws. Now if we understand what Jesus warns us about casting judgment in Matthew 7, and what Paul is teaching us in Galatians, it's actually very humbling and sobering. We begin to see the responsibilities that we have to each other as members of this body. I must keep my own eyes free of logs and specks. Yes, to please my Father. Yes, to please the the head who is Christ. But also because my brother or sister might need me one day to help. And I must help him today because tomorrow I might need his help removing something that is caught in my eye. It's humbling because when I realize that my life is full of specks and splinters and beams, I don't feel all that great. At some point in the past, I did turn to Christ for cleansing and forgiveness, but I still rely on Him to continue His work in me of removing those things and renewing me in His image. As I'm trying to help a brother, I'm constantly aware that I too am poor in need. I also struggle with sin. I need the power of Christ's forgiveness and grace to live this way He calls us to do. It's not by my efforts that I made it this far. It's only by His grace that has carried me. 
His blood that washed away my sin. His Gospel that saved me. And His Word that sanctified me. I must remember that the speck of sin I am so keen to notice in another Christian and so quick to condemn has already been condemned and judged in Christ and forgiven by God. Jesus is really the only one who can truly say, I have no sin. John reminds us in his letter, he says, if we say we have no sin, we are liars and do not practice the truth. Only Jesus has the clear vision, perfect vision to remove the sin in us. And yet He did not condemn us. He loves us. He gave Himself for us. He was condemned for us. He restores us. John 3.18 says, Whosoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whosoever does not believe is condemned already because he is not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In Romans 8.1, Paul writes that in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation. That form of judgment then is not my responsibility. But there is a form of both mutual and self-discipline that I am called to do as a part of the body. This is a part of the function of a local church. As people unite with the church, they recognize their need both to be accountable to others and to hold one another accountable. There's no perfect church and there are no perfect Christians. But a healthy church will have spiritual Christians who pay close attention first to their own lives by regularly inspecting their own vision for anything that would not please God. They've been washed and cleaned by the Word of God. And then they humbly reach out to those struggling members of the body to provide loving acts of restoration. This begins with coming to Christ for cleansing. Notice that the freedom from condemnation uh, that John wrote about is only in Christ. He says that whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. John says that your unbelief already condemns you, but when you come to Christ through faith and repentance, you experience the cleansing and forgiveness of sin. You're still a sinner. There's still a lot of work to be done in each of us. But that's why there's a church. That's why we have the church. There's a body of people who can both help and be helped. That's why we want to, to, to gather as many people within our church as we can because I need your help and you need to be helped by not just me, by all of us. And that ought to be the attitude as we come to church and as we unite with church is that I'm coming to help and be helped. I'm coming both to restore and be restored. Ephesians 4.15 tells us that by speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head that is Christ. From Him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Brothers, sisters, let's be careful of the temptation that we each face to judge each other. First, let's judge ourselves. For as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But let's also be mindful of the members in our church body. When we see a brother who's caught up in a sin, 
or a sister with a speck in her eye? May we love them enough and love our church and Christ enough to help. May we be spiritual so that we approach them in love and gentleness, not to condemn, but to restore.